0: Break the breakthrough. breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. You are now listening to Breakthrough News. (laughs) It's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this The punch out we're following the news all day so you don't have to giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be and yes we are back here on the punch out 15th of november 2021 Very happy to be back with you here on the show. And we've got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about where things stand in Ethiopia with the ongoing conflict there. Turmoil continuing in Tunisia as well. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with the ongoing protest movement in Sudan, which remains in the streets. (laughs) The Sudanese people took to the streets around the country on Saturday in the second, quote-unquote, March of Millions against a coup by the military that took place in late October. At least tens of thousands of people took to the streets in the capital of Khartoum and Omdurman, which sits just across the Nile River, as well as nearby Khartoum North. Protests also took place in Darfur, where thousands in refugee camps in various parts of the state were said to have participated. Also, people took to the streets in Kassala in eastern Sudan, Wad Madani, the capital of al Jazeera, as well as Port Sudan, where oil and other exports have been blocked by protesters for several months now. There were also large protests in the streets there. At least five people were killed by security forces in Khartoum and Omdurman at one point. The military actually stormed a hospital in the latter city, attacking patients and staff. Videos have emerged of military and police forces beating and tear-gassing subjects, and there are reports of disappearances by repressive forces disguised as protesters at various points on Saturday. There were numerous reports of police and military units working to prevent the coming together of various protests that started in the various neighborhoods of Khartoum especially, in efforts to fragment the protest and prevent demonstrators from clearly reflecting the mass anger with the current military government visually by all coming together from all various parts of the city. The current situation, after the protest, appears to be a bit of an impasse. At the end of last week, the military moved to consolidate power, resurrecting its own version of the pre-coup government with the quote-unquote civilian component handpicked by them. They claim this new government is in conformity with the plan they signed in 2019 to establish a joint civilian military council that, among other things, will move to elections in 2023, which the military claims is still their goal. Their new setup has the backing of certain former armed groups from Darfur, also elements of the military who defected. From the 1989 to 2019 government led by Omar al-Bashir that was toppled by a mass uprising in 2019. And the military, if they can swing it, is hoping to add to that the leadership of important groups in the deeply impoverished eastern region of Sudan where there is significant unrest. Certain other elements from within the Forces for Freedom and Change, an umbrella group of opposition forces that allied with the military to oust Bashir, seem to be engaging with the military and attempting to replace a range of Bashir-era officials with their own affiliates to give the new setup called the Transitional Sovereignty Council a less old guard look. However, the military has also just released one of the big businessmen closest to al-Bashir, which many are connecting with the slowing down of attempts to claw back looted wealth by the former government as a sign that the military is constructing a government more like Bashir's than not, which has been a point made many times by the resistance committees, the Sudanese Professional Association, the Sudanese Communist Party, and others who are at the heart of the resistance to the coup and who played a major catalyzing role in the 2019 uprising that overthrew Bashir. They've been warning since 2020, in fact, that the civilian military setup was not committed to the thoroughgoing changes that the 2019 movement spoke to, which are political, social and economic in nature. And in fact, they noted that in many ways, this so-called civilian military setup was just a rearranging of the elite deck chairs. The movement in the street is demanding in that vein, not only that the military step down, but that a new entirely civilian government take up the transitional cause and that it be composed only of those out of the protest movement with some sort of role for the resistance committees in the neighborhoods, unions, farmers, organizations and professional organizations that does not, in the words of the Sudanese Professional Association, quote, deviate from the path of radical change and the goals of the December revolution and breaking with the covenants of oppression and exploitation and establishing complete freedom, sustainable peace, and comprehensive justice, end quote. Western nations who heavily back the civilian military deal that headed off the full steam of the 2019 uprising are all, along with most regional states, denouncing the coup, but more or less these formal statements have amounted to a thoughts and prayers kind of approach to the protest. The countries with any real leverage are not using it to any degree. It's not even clear how much they disagree with what the military is doing beyond their rhetorical opposition. The U.S., for instance, while verbally standing with the protesters, didn't do much more than, well, we don't actually know what they did because we haven't gotten the direct reporting from the meeting. But the military told them the day before the coup that they planned to carry it out and they went ahead with it anyway, which makes you think the U.S. didn't offer really strong opposition. The coup government certainly makes the U.S. look bad if they were to openly support it, but at the end of the day, it is continuing with the post-Bashir path the U.S. was looking for. Open season for foreign investment in Sudan, normalization of relations with Israel, and taking a generally U.S.-friendly stance towards the conflict in Ethiopia. So, similar to, say, Egypt after the Arab Spring, while the U.S. is verbally for democracy, what it really wants is stability around its goals for the region, however that may come. So for now, it seems the struggle is between the streets and the system and whether or not the masses of people can shake the military's grip on power. Tunisia also saw large protests in the capital of Tunis over the weekend as tens of thousands took to the streets to demand an end to the rule by decree by the current president, who suspended the parliament and dismissed the government and has stated that he will rule alone for some unknown amount of time. The president, Kais Saeed, has claimed that he had to do this in order to restore stability to the country, but many are looking at it as an outright power grab, ultimately backed by the forces favorable to the old dictatorship of Ben Ali that was toppled during the Arab Spring. This comes after last week, where hundreds of young people protested against the reopening of a hazardous landfill in Tunisia's second largest city and were met with serious police violence. In fact, one protester ended up dead from inhaling tear gas that was used quite liberally. The country's million-strong labor federation, the UGTT, has called for a general strike and is demanding a move to fresh elections to restore some semblance of democratic rule. This also follows sporadic bursts of protests over the course of this year, targeting the same issues, as well as the COVID-19 response and the issue of police brutality. For instance, in June, the working class neighborhoods of Tunis were aflame with protest over both everyday police brutality and that which was directed at those who have been protesting economic and health deficiencies in the government's response to the crisis around COVID-19. Unemployment has pushed 20% at times during the pandemic, while poverty rates range as high as 32% in some parts of the country, and that's according to official government statistics. And on top of that, the government has been intimating that they will more aggressively pursue austerity measures as well. The nature of all these protests has centered on the fact that many feel the current president is essentially attempting to restore the pre-2011 dictatorship and the broader status quo that goes along with it. And that, like al-Sisi in Egypt, the quote-unquote deep state behind the dictatorship, is trying to use discontent as a mechanism to roll back the democratic gains of the popular uprising. The Workers' Party, which is a key part of the opposition, major left-wing party there in Tunisia, has raised a sharper critique along similar lines, declaring that Tunisia needs a third way, as opposed to either a renewed neoliberal capitalist dictatorship or Islamically tinged capitalist democracy, and that there needs to be aggressive efforts to address the social and economic issues of the country, which, of course, include high unemployment and, as previously mentioned, police brutality as well. The president, however, like CC, does have support and has had demonstrations supporting him as well, although they don't seem to be as large, and really seems totally set to try to hold on to power. So all that's left to be seen is if the people, like in 2011, have other ideas. <laughs> Yesterday, in something of a surprise, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta appeared in Addis Ababa, hugging Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed at the airport and proceeding to hold a high-profile meeting with the PM and also the president of Ethiopia. The meeting raised eyebrows as Kenyatta has been widely considered to be somewhere between outright pro-TPLF, that's the armed group seeking to overthrow Ethiopia's government right now, or at least not that sympathetic to the Ethiopian position. Kenya, which is currently a UN Security Council member, has been using its position there to heavily back the AU negotiating initiative, which, by the way, the TPLF has almost totally rejected. And Kenya has made a big point of promoting African solutions there at the Security Council, but also has been offering plenty of criticism all around, including some pretty barbed criticisms at Ethiopia. So in other words, walking a bit of a tightrope here. Kenyatta arrives just a few days after the AU negotiating lead. Former Nigerian President Obasanjo left the capital without, well, much of anything happening. The two visits appear to be part of a flurry of diplomatic efforts, with the U.S. Special Envoy to the region, Jeffrey Feltman, also being in Addis last week, and the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, holding a phone meeting with Prime Minister Ahmed recently. The diplomatic flurry is happening, as it appears the TPLS battlefield situation is declining. Roughly two weeks ago, the TPLF had claimed to essentially be on the verge of taking the capital of Addis, something that almost all international media backed up, despite there being very little evidence of that being the case. It seems the fighting never reached closer than 200 kilometers away, and the TPLF and the media ended up quite embarrassed, although both refused to admit the clearly wishful thinking at play. And this was something, their embarrassment, that was even further demonstrated by huge support rallies for the government all across the country that took aim at CNN in particular for their biased reporting on the state of the war. The war, however, is at a crossroads. Things hinge on the battles in the Desi-Kumbachala region that is about 300 kilometers away from Addis. and. Both of these cities are relatively significantly sized urban areas. The two cities sit at a strategic crossroads of the A2 and B11 highways. This junction is the major north-south-east-west highways in Ethiopia. You can go west to Amhara, south to Addis, north to Mikkel, that's the capital of Tigray, and east to Afar. Whoever controls this junction controls the flow of troops and material in a major way. It would be very difficult to move large forces around the country unimpeded for whoever does not control the area. Further control of the junction endangers the only highway that facilitates external trade to Djibouti in Ethiopia, that's the A1 highway, and that can be reached via some of these other throughways. So not only is it crucial overall, but it opens up the possibility, if the area can be held by the TPLF, that they could potentially break out to the east and cut off all external trade to the port of Djibouti. So again, the outcome of this battle is very likely to determine the outcome of the war. While there is a range of contradictory information coming out of the war fronts, the TPLF seems to be on the back foot. A lot of reasons for believing that's the case, but if for no other reason, we can see it to a degree in their own propaganda, which has started to emphasize their own dire plight, where just a week and a half ago it was full of bluster about the imminent end of the war and how they were about to seize the capital of Addis Ababa. Negotiations in a real sense seem unlikely. The TPLF refuses to recognize the current government or withdraw its troops from the regions of Amhara and Afar, which it has invaded. In other words, then, it's demanding that the government, which just demonstrated significant support all across the country in elections, step down. And that the 2018 process that led to the sidelining of the TPLF from their own 30-year rule of the country via massive protest movements and insurgencies all over the country be rolled back and that they essentially be rewarded for starting a war by being returned, if not to power, much closer to power than they can demonstrate countrywide support for. And in fact, in the current situation, they seem determined to force an endgame of extreme violence, since it's clear that their negotiating terms could never be accepted. From beginning to end, the TPLF has attempted to use humanitarian concerns as a weapon to try to leverage intervention from the U.S. and others, and clearly they are hoping that by fighting to the finish, or at least looking like they're going to fight to the finish, they can ramp up that sentiment and be saved by the U.S. or other actors, using sanctions as pressure on Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and the Ethiopian government to accept TPLF terms of negotiating. Last week, the U.S. showed that it seems to be on board with that kind of a direction for things at the end of the week the U.S. issued vague and open-ended sanctions on Eritrea and in the gray area of that language the Eritrean diaspora in the United States clearly the U.S. is trying to send a message that even if the Ethiopian government asks the Eritrean government to get involved even if the TPLF attacks Eritrea that they better not get involved or face even tougher sanctions why do that now The only logical reason, of course, is to try to make it harder for Ethiopia to win the war and easier for the TPLF to hang on. And the more the TPLF can turn things into a quagmire, the easier it is for them and their friends in the U.S. and elsewhere to use sanctions and so on against Ethiopia for, quote unquote, humanitarian reasons in order to try to force them to the table on TPLF terms. In our current moment, then, things are at a bit of a tipping point. But signs seem to be indicating a clear shift in favor of the Ethiopian government as the TPLF's extreme negotiating positions and unwillingness to stop its escalation of the conflict are more and more clearly the key blockade on the road to peace. That's the punch out for today.